Let's open our Bibles up to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. I think most of you were here last night. Anybody, any first-timers here tonight that were not here last night? We have one. Welcome here. Uh, last night I mentioned that what we're doing last night and tonight is we are going through Revelation chapter 13. Uh, last night we looked at the, bee, the beast that came out of the water, out of the sea. And this evening we're going to look at Revelation 13 verse 11 that describes another beast, a second beast that comes up out of the earth. And if you've never heard this topic before, I tell you, you are in for a real treat. I mean, this is just, it almost gives me shivers to think about the United States of America, uh, what's happening in our country, where we've been in the past, where we're going in the future, and how much the book of Revelation talks about these things. And I'm going to try to prove that uh, this evening. I'm, I'm well aware of the fact that there are many Christians in many different churches who talk about prophecy. And if you ask them, where is America? Many of them will say, we're not there. We're not in the Bible. We're not in the book of Revelation. I've heard that numerous times. But I differ with that opinion. And I'm going to try to uh, build a case that, as you see the title on the screen, American Bible prophecy, that God has not left this nation out of his book. We are in his book. We're in Revelation 13, verse 11, and I'll try to prove that. So let's pray together and ask God to be, to be with us, to bless us, and then we're going to get into a stirring study. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our privilege and our honor uh, to be here together in this church in Garland. And we pray that as we open the Bible and as we look at word, that the amazing prophecy that's in Revelation 13, verse 11, we pray that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who inspired the Bible, who inspired the Bible writers, and who uh, flowed through Jesus, Son of Man and the Son of God, we pray that you will bless us and help us. And please help me as I lead out in this, in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Revelation 13, verse 11. Hopefully our clicker is working tonight. Okay, something's happening with the clicker. I'm not getting any action using your clicker. This is the Texas clicker. <laughs> Come on. Nothing. Might need to use a Texas finger tonight. Okay, there we go. All right, let's see. Here's the mountain. Mount St. Helens. That's it. Are you familiar with that mountain? Anybody ever seen that mountain? Anybody ever been to that mountain? Uh, it's, in, uh, it's in Washington. Uh, I was actually at that mountain just a few months ago. Actually not right there, but I was a little ways away staying in a hotel, and I think I have a, a picture of that. Yes, um, 
Actually, that's a, a man, his name is Harry Truman, who used to live at the base of Mount St. Helens. Uh, Mount St. Helens is, a, is a, actually a volcanic mountain, as you can see from the smoke going off there. A lot of volcanic mountains along the in Washington. And anyway, it was in the year uh, 1980 when that mountain started smoking and sputtering and the ground started shaking. And so people who study uh, volcanoes, they really took a close look at the activity and they concluded that that mountain, Mount St. Helens, was getting ready to explode. So they sent out a warning all over the area for people to get out. If you live anywhere close to the mountain, you need to get as far away as you can because if this mountain goes off, you're, you're probably gonna die. And most everybody listened to the warning, except for that man, and there were probably some others, but that man, Harry Truman, uh, he lived at the base of the mountain. He ran a lodge. He had been living there for in the area for probably 40 or 50 years. He was well-known. He was rather, a, uh, sometimes people say he's kind of a cantankerous person, kind of a hermit. And so when word went out that that mountain's gonna go off, most likely, and he needed to evacuate the area, he decided he wasn't going anywhere. He decided, I'm gonna take my chances. I've been here for a long time. Probably the mountain won't go off, and even if it does, well, we'll just see how I do. Well, that was not a very uh, smart decision on his part because uh, shortly thereafter, the mountain did explode, and that was the end of Harry Truman. Truman never found his body. He was probably buried somewhere near the, the lake there. You can see Spirit Lake uh, underneath ash, lava, trees, debris. Uh, you know, that was it. His family never saw him again. And the reason why this man died was simple. It was because he refused to listen to a sensible warning. The signs were right there, and he should have gotten out, but he didn't. Now, um, okay, there's actually a picture of the mountain going off on May 18, 1980. And, it, I, and when I went there, there was a visitor center that I had the privilege of going to, and I saw a video of the whole thing and the timeline of what happened and it was just very very uh, very solemn now i use this as an illustration uh, and i call revelation chapter 13 mount revelation 13. and the reason why i'm using this analogy is because my belief and i hope you'll share this when we're done with this meeting my belief is that mount revelation 13 is smoking it is active the ground is shaking and it's very clear to me that it's not going to be long until the prophecies in this chapter completely uh, go off and explode in front of our eyes and my conviction is that god is giving us a warning in this chapter just like he gave the people who lived around mount saint helen a warning to get out of the area and I believe that God is giving us a sensible warning that the prophecies in this chapter are getting closer to their final explosion. And he wants us not to be like Harry, but he wants us to listen, to take this warning to heart. And ultimately what that means is to prioritize our relationship with God, our, rela our relationship with Jesus, so that when this prophecy goes off, and things are happening all around us, and people don't know what to do, 
we will have a calm mind, we'll have peace of mind, we're going to be able to trust the Lord because we know that God is with us, that Jesus is our Savior, and we're ready for whatever happens. So that's what we hope to uh, accomplish tonight to show that this prophecy is very active. So our main text is Revelation 13, verse 11. This is our key verse for tonight. So if you have a Bible or if you have a smartphone, uh, find your Bible app or in your Bible, turn to Revelation 13, verse 11. And there is the verse on the screen. And this is what the Bible says. John wrote this. He said, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns, like what kind of an animal? Like a lamb. But how did he finally speak? He spoke like Dissect this verse. By the time we're done tonight, you're going to know this verse inside and out. Now, the first thing I want to look at is the very first part where John says, I saw. Do all your Bibles say that? Or I beheld, I saw. Now, the I is a man named John. John wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote this book. He wrote it about 2,000 years ago. What happened was he was on an island called the island of Patmos, sort of an Alcatraz island. And he was a prisoner of Rome on this island. And on this island, Jesus came to him in a vision. This was after Jesus was resurrected and went to heaven. And he gave John a vision. And this was somewhere around 96 AD. That's what the historians and Bible scholars tell us. Somewhere around then. So it was somewhere around as in years ago. And John had this vision. And in this vision, he saw different things. So when you read the book of Revelation, he'll say, I saw this, I saw that, I heard this, I was told to write this down. And so that's what he did. So throughout the book, you'll read phrases like this, I saw. And I'm convinced that the book of Revelation is a supernatural book. It's not a book that originated with a, a man who decided to be creative and write a book about prophecy. This is not what happened. This book came from, from Jesus who revealed information to John that he could not possibly have known on his own. And what we're looking here at, at in Revelation 13, 11, this about this beast, this is a beast that John saw in a vision, he looked down the stream of time and he saw this beast coming up. And uh, I, I'm just convinced that this, the whole prophecy is supernatural. That John was shown something that he could never have figured out on his own. And as we look closely at this verse, I think it'll be very, very clear. Uh, John, by, by trade, he was, uh, he was a humble fisherman. He knew how to throw nets into the water and catch fish. He wasn't uh, you know, a, an extremely uh, educated and intelligent uh, professional. He was just a humble man who knew how to fish. And he was the one that Jesus gave this vision to. And as we're about to see, there is so much intelligence 
inside of this verse, there's no way that a fisherman could have made this up. So, I saw. And now what did he see? He saw another beast. Now, another beast shows us that this is not the only beast, right? This is another beast. So, the first beast is in verse 1, going down through verse uh, 10, which we studied last night. So, there's two beasts. And so, first he saw the first beast that we studied last night, and then he saw another beast, a second beast, which was different than the first. Now, as I mentioned last night, in order for us to understand this prophecy, we have to know what a beast represents in prophecy. And this is just a quick review. Uh, last night, we went from Revelation 13 over to Daniel chapter 7. And we went through quite a bit of that prophecy. And I showed that Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 talk about the same things. They both talk about a lion, a bear, a leopard, a dragon, ten horns, a mouth, making war on the saints. They say the same things. And in uh, Daniel 7, Daniel had a dream, just like John had a vision. Daniel had a dream, and he saw four beasts coming up out of the sea. And we looked at those beasts last night, and you see the verse on the screen there. Daniel 7, verse 23, tells what a beast represents in prophecy. And what does a beast represent in prophecy? A kingdom. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. And I, met, and I showed you how uh, the first beast represented Babylon, and then there was Persia, which was followed by Greece, which was followed by Rome. These are mighty nations that, were, uh, that rose and fell hundreds of years ago, starting with Babylon. Daniel was living in Babylon when he had the dream, and those were the nations that came after Babylon. So just a quick review. We know from Daniel 7, which parallels Revelation 13, that a beast does not represent a computer, it doesn't represent a man, it doesn't represent uh, a church. Uh, a beast represents a mighty nation. Got that? Clear? Okay, so now once we have that nailed down, then we go back to Revelation 13, and John, in his vision, saw another beast. And what that means is that John saw another mighty nation rising up on the stage of history. Just like Babylon rose up, Medo-Persia rose up, Greece rose up, Rome rose up. So now we have another nation coming up on the screen. Now, a key part of this is it says, I saw another beast, and then what are the next two words? Coming up. Coming up. Just like Babylon came up, Persia came up, Greece came up, Rome came up, and now here's another beast coming up. Now, the question is, when, approximately, is this beast coming up? Uh, did, did, did he come up during the time of Babylon, or Persia, or Greece, or Rome? Or does he come up down the stream of time, down near the end times? If you look at world history, you go from the time of creation, to the flood, to the time of Israel, time of Jesus, and you just go down through history, uh, we go down near the end days, and then 
this beast comes up. Now we know that because if you look at verse 16, verse 16 tells us that he is coming up time when the mark of the beast is finally enforced. Verse 16 says that this same beast will eventually cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark. Now, let me ask you, has the mark of the beast, has that already happened, or is the mark of the beast still coming ahead of us? It's still coming ahead of us. So this beast comes up down near the end times, and finally this beast is involved in the enforcement of the mark of the beast, which is still future. So that tells us that this beast comes up and then he's actively involved in the final events in the history of this world before Jesus comes. So that is another, another clue about this beast. Now, uh, oh, I forgot to mention something else. Coming up, this is very interesting, the, the Greek word for coming up, uh, when we're reading this in our Bibles, in our English Bibles, assuming most of us are speaking English and we are reading English Bibles, most of us I'm assuming, but the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in who knows what language? Greek, right. It was not written in English, it was written in Greek. John didn't speak English. He spoke Greek or he spoke Ar- Aramaic uh, or there's different languages that were uh, current in the Roman world, but, uh, but he wrote this in Greek. It's called Koine Greek. And the Greek word for coming up that he originally used, translated into English, literally means this. It means coming up gradually like a plant growing up in a garden. That's what it means, coming up. Coming up like a plant gradually, slowly, getting bigger and stronger, just like something that you would plant in your garden. So that's what that means. Now notice, where does he come from? Of the what? Right, he comes up out of the earth. Now that is not a, uh, a minor detail. That's very important. If you remember the first in chapter 13 and verse 1, Anybody remember where that beast came up from? Right, he came up from the sea. And if you remember in Daniel 7, where did the four beasts come up from? From the sea, right. So in Daniel 7, they come out of the sea. In Revelation 13, 1, first beast comes out of the sea, but the second beast comes out of the earth. It's different. And this is not a minor detail, but this is a very, very important piece of intelligence information that the Lord is giving us to try to help us to to understand this prophecy. Now, next question is, uh, what does the sea represent and what does the earth represent? So, uh, there's the verse in Daniel 7, 3, four great beasts came up from the sea. Now, there's there's another verse in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 15. Uh, And actually, turn turn to Revelation 17, And let me show you verse 1, and then we'll go to verse 15. Revelation 17 is a different chapter that we're we're not really going to study the details tonight, a lot of it. Uh, I have a book, maybe you recognize that lady on the screen. I have a book on the sales table. It's only, I think, $3, so pretty cheap to buy a book for 3 bucks. 
And that book is called The Bloody Woman and the Seven-Headed Beast. And last night, I believe, we gave some away for free. But tonight, we're selling them $3. So if you didn't get one last night, I uh, hope you'll pick one up tonight. And that book is all about the beasts of the book of Revelation and about the woman described in Revelation 17 who is riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And her name is called Babylon. And if you look at verse 1, it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven vials, who talked with me, and he said to me, Come here, the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many what? Many waters, right? So here's this woman, Babylon. And in my book, I go into all the details of, of every verse in this chapter, who this woman represents, what she symbolizes, what the beast symbolizes. There's a lot of deep things in that book. So my point here is that this woman is sitting upon uh, the waters. Uh, the question is, what does the waters represent in prophecy? And the answer Revelation 17, verse 15 says, He said to me, so here's an angel talking to John. He said, The waters which you saw where the whore sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, which refers to different languages. So uh, based on this verse, this is an inspired verse, just like, Daniel's, in Daniel's book, it says that the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. So we know that a beast is a kingdom. The beast is the symbol, and the kingdom is the application. And so in Revelation 17, 15, the water is the symbol, and the application is it represents multitudes of people, nations, languages, all different kinds of people. And if you look at the uh, beasts of Daniel 7, of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the first beast of Revelation 13, which we talked about last night, all of these beasts rose up out of the water, meaning that they rose up in the midst of a lot of people, multitudes of people, different languages, uh, you know, masses of people in Europe and in the Middle East. That's where they came up. But now, if the water or the sea represents a lot of people, in verse 11, and it says that this new beast comes up out of the earth, which would be different from the, the water, which is where the people are, then that would indicate that this new nation grows up gradually like a plant in an area that's not super populated. It's a sparsely populated area. It's more of a wilderness type of an area. Now, there were some people uh, in early colonial America, but not a lot. I mean, if you were to go to Garland, Texas, uh, 200 years ago, what do you think you'd find here? Yeah, not much. A lot of trees. You've heard of Lewis and Clark, you know, that went across uh, the, the country on their journey of exploration. Most of America was wilderness. Texas was largely wilderness. North Idaho was wilderness. 
So this nation grew up gradually like a plant in an area that was not very populated. Are you following me? So we have John seeing in vision another nation rising up, uh, coming up slowly, and growing up in an area where there was not people. Does this fit so far? Okay, now we've only gotten, only, we've only gotten uh, not even quite halfway through the verse. So I tell you, there's a lot in this verse, isn't there? This verse is loaded. It's jam-packed. So then the next part says that he would have two horns like a lamb. Two horns like a lamb. Now this is very interesting. Now the fact that he has two, and this is symbolic because guess what? Lambs don't have horns. Anybody raise sheep here? Now you raise sheep, okay? So you know little baby lambs, they don't have horns, do they? They do not, that's right, not that I've ever seen. Uh, so this is the symbolism that we're dealing with. And, when, and the idea of two would indicate there's some kind of a, a division or a separation of power within the government of this nation. Some kind of separation of powers. Now the word horn uh, also applies to powers, but notice there's something, there's something about the word horn that's very, very interesting. Uh, remember last night I talked about how there's two ways to study the Bible, study, study the book of Revelation. You can be a water skier on the surface or you can be a deep sea diver. Now most people, they just water ski right over this verse and they don't really look at it closely. And when they see two horns, they typically have no idea what this means. And there's something about the word horn that most people never know. Thing missing from those horns that are on top of the horns of the first beast in verse 1. So keep your finger on verse 11 and go back to Revelation 13, verse 1. And I want you to notice something about the first beast. He has horns too, but there's something on top of those horns. The sand, the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, horns, and upon his horns, ten what? Ten crowns. Now, when you think of a crown, what do you think of? Think of a king, right? In ancient days, kings would sit on thrones and they would wear crowns. Crowns represent kingly power. And uh, this beast has ten horns representing the ten nations of Europe. And then the crowns on the horn, horns represent state power. And this is a beast that unites with state power. And I talked about this last night, who this beast was, remember? We talked about the Roman church and how the Roman church is really a blend of church and state. That's why the Pope is not just a pastor of, of the Catholic church, but he's also 
a monarch over Vatican City. He's, he's like a president. He's a ruler. And what he says is law. So church and state combined. But back to Revelation 13, verse 11, we see this uh, second beast, and he has horns, and they have no crowns on them. Isn't that interesting? So if crowns represent kingly power of a monarchy, the fact that this second beast has horns without crowns would indicate that in the governmental leader structure of this nation, uh, it would be a government more of the people, by the people, for the people, instead of a government that is ruled by a king whose word absolute law. See that? This is in, in, this, uh, in this text. Now, next point. We're not done yet. Uh, it says that he would, he would have two horns like what kind of an animal? Like a lamb. Right. Now, in the, we talked about this last night, that the lamb in the book of Revelation represents who? Jesus. Right. Jesus is the lamb. Now, just to make it uh, for the record, just to be clear, this beast is not Jesus. It is not the lamb, but it has two horns like a lamb. See that? There's a difference there. And this would indicate a number of things. Uh, one of them is that this beast has Christian features. In fact, it's the only beast in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation that has something good about it. It's the only one. It has two horns that are lamb-like. In other words, there's, there's some kind of Christian principles, Christian features that are part of this nation. Now, something else is a lamb is not a beast of prey. In, in Daniel, the, the, the uh, kingdom of Babylon was a lion, which is a beast of prey. And that beast was conquered by the bear, which is a beast of prey. He conquered the lion. And then the leopard, which was a beast of prey, conquered uh, the bear. And then the dragon conquered the leopard, which conquered the bear, which conquered the lion, right? But the, the beast like a lamb in Revelation 13, 11, lambs are not beasts of prey. And this beast is not going to come up by conquering uh, another mighty nation, but it's going to grow up gradually like a plant. See? There's a difference. And, and not only that, but there's something, and this, this hit me one day, it's very powerful what I'm about, about to tell you. The word lamb in the Bible not only applies to Jesus, but it specifically applies to his, his character quality of being willing to sacrifice himself. Lambs in the Bible were sacrificed weren't they? And Jesus as the lamb shows that he sacrificed himself on the cross for the sins of the world. Isn't that right? Now, if you look at the history of America, has a, America has two horns like a lamb. Has America grown up and become a mighty nation today 
because of any sacrifices that anybody's made? You know, if they think about the, any veterans here in this, uh, in this, okay, we see two, I see two. Uh, have veterans sacrificed themselves? Have people gone overseas and engaged in wars and, and helped to protect the freedom of this country and sacrificed their lives to defend American citizens? Yes, they have. And in spite of our problems, and our Ameri American history has many problems, I know that. We haven't always done the right thing. We haven't always been the land of the free, the home of the brave. We haven't always stood for the principles of religious freedom. But in spite of the problems, there's been a lot of good, a lot of nobility, a lot of sacrifice that has happened in this country to help make this country what it is. Isn't that right? Surely is true. And I see those principles of nobility, gentleness, sacrifice, freedom, all embedded in this verse. It's all right there that this beast has two horns like a lamb. Now, there's something else I want to bring out. I'm not done yet. Um, there's one section in the New Testament where Jesus, as the lamb, revealed a principle, actually two principles, two horns like a lamb, two principles revealed by Jesus that have become the foundation of this country. And that account is in Matthew chapter 22. So keep your finger there in Revelation and turn to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look at a few verses here that are just going to blow your mind. If you'd never seen this before. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Uh, the Bible says, Then went the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were, were Jews. They were religious leaders. And they had certain ideas about what the Messiah was going to do when he came. The Pharisees thought the Messiah is going to come and he's going to conquer the Romans and free the Jews. That was, his, that was their view. And when Jesus came, he didn't do that. And so they questioned whether he was the Messiah. He can't be the, be the Messiah. So they decided to try to trick him and expose him. He says, then went the Pharisees and they took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. They were going to try to uh, get Jesus all tangled up in, in what he was saying. Now, these Pharisees, they didn't realize who they were trying to entangle in his talk. They didn't realize who this man really was. They didn't realize that underneath the garb of humanity was the living God in human form. And he has, he probably has no IQ. <laughs> it's the IQ is so high that you can't measure it. He has an IQ off the charts. And they didn't realize they were trying to entangle a man that has an infinite IQ. They didn't understand that. So verse 16 says they went out, they went out, they sent out to him their disciples with the Herodians 
who were the followers of Herod, and they said, Master, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God in truth. Neither do you care for any man, for you do not regard the person of men. In other words, you don't have respect of persons. You don't treat you know, one group above another group. You treat everybody fairly. So here's these uh, men who came from the Pharisees. They come to Jesus. He's surrounded by people. And they, what they first do is they flatter him. They say, oh, Master, we know you came from God. We know that you're teaching the truth. We know that you are not a respecter of persons. And that, that really was uh, quite an admission for them to say. And if they would have meant those words, you know, that would have been an honor to uh, Jesus. But did they really mean those words? No, that's called flattery. They were flattering him to try to get into his good graces so then they could ask him the trick question and they can entangle him in his talk. That's what they were trying to do. Now, what do we call people who say one thing, but uh, in their hearts, they really believe something else? Yeah, we call them a hypocrite. Remember that word, hypocrite. Now, look at, this, look at the beast on the screen. What, do you call, what word would you use to describe uh, a beast with two horns like a lamb, Christian features, but speaks like a dragon? See the point? It's hypocrisy. And it's this, the same character of this beast is the same character of those men who came to Jesus. Same characters. So notice. Uh, so then in verse 17, after they did their flattery, then verse 17, they said to Jesus, they said, tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give our tribute or our taxes to Caesar or not? And that was their trick question. You could call it their carefully crafted question. And they thought to themselves, you know, once we flatter him, his guard will be down. And then we'll ask him our trick question. They'll say, uh, they say, Jesus, is it, is it lawful for us who are Jews to give our taxes to the Romans, to Caesar? And this is what they thought. They thought to themselves, if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful for us as Jews to pay our taxes to Rome, then they would, these Pharisees or these men would have turned around and looked at the crowd of Jews and they would have said, you see, there's the proof. He can't be a Messiah, our Messiah. He's a false Messiah because our Messiah is going to conquer the Romans and free the Jews. He's not going to tell us to pay our taxes to the government. And they thought, you know, based on the common idea of the Messiah, that that would just, that would put an end to Jesus' popularity. So they thought, if he says that, we're going to nail him. But then they thought, well, what if he's smart? And what if he says, no, don't pay your taxes to the government? It's like saying, don't pay your taxes to the IRS. Uh, and if he would have said that, then they thought, aha, uh -huh, if he says that, we're going to go right to the Roman authorities and pretend like we're loyal to the Roman authorities. And we're going to tell the Roman authorities, there's a man running around in Judea who's telling people not to pay their taxes. And you want, if you want to strike a nerve, 
uh, in government leaders, especially people that, you know, live on taxes, uh, just, just tell them there's somebody that's trying to get around paying taxes. If you don't pay your taxes to the IRS, I do not advise that because they're going to come after you and they're, they're bigger than you are. So I pay my taxes. I, I would prefer not to pay a lot of taxes, but I still pay my taxes because I don't want to get in the crosshairs of the government. So they thought, you know, if he says, don't pay your taxes, then the Romans will come and arrest him and put him in jail, take him away, and they'll, they won't have to worry about this Jesus anymore. See that? So they figured whatever Jesus says, yes or no, they will entangle him in his talk. But sometimes when uh, people came to Jesus and said, uh, Jesus, is it A or B? He would say, it's C. <laughs> See, he's much smarter than people, and he was much smarter than these men. And so look at, look at what he says. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 18 says, but Jesus perceived, what did he perceive? Their wickedness. In other words, he was not fooled by their flattery. He looked right into their hearts. He saw everything about them. He knew exactly what they were doing. And he saw their wickedness. And that tells me that Jesus reads us like an open book. You cannot hide anything from God. Uh, there's, some, there's an old saying that you can fool some of the people, or you, what do they, how do they say it? You, you can fool some of the people some of the time. But you, you how, how do they say that? You, yeah, you can't fool all the people all the time. That's right. And there's somebody you can't fool at any time. And that's God and Jesus. He knows everything. So uh, this story has convinced me, this account, that we need to be totally honest with God. You know, we don't have, need to have any skeletons in our closets because he knows if we have skeletons in our closets. He knows everything. So it says, Jesus perceived their wickedness and then he said to them, he said, why are you tempting me, you hypocrites? So, and I, I bet when Jesus said that to them, why are you tempting me, you hypocrites? you men who are being hypocrites. That was like a flash of light. Because they came to, remember, they probably felt pretty good about themselves. They thought, hey, we flattered him, and, and now he thinks we're good guys. And then they asked him the trick question. And then when Jesus looked at them and said, why are you tempting me, you hypocritical people? I mean, that was right there. That was a flash of light that showed them that he knew their hearts. And that should have been enough right there to convince them that he was the true Messiah of God. Because he knew everything about them, even what they weren't saying. I mean, that's powerful. This is powerful. There's nobody like Jesus. Nobody like Jesus. And as I read this, you know, I, if I want to be with Jesus someday, if I want to live with Jesus someday in his kingdom, then I need to let Jesus take out of me every form of wickedness and hypocrisy, any skeletons, anything that I'm doing that I think he doesn't know about, but he does know about, all of it's got to go. 
Because if I hope to be ready for his return and to live with him someday, he is not a being who likes hypocrites. I mean, he loves hypocrites, but he doesn't like hypocrisy. You see my point? He loves us. He loved those men even if they were hypocrites. He still loved them, but he did not like their hypocrisy because he knows hypocrisy is bad. It's harmful to people. And Jesus doesn't want us to be hurting ourselves with our sins. So anyway, there was a flash of light. And then he said to them, in verse 19, he said, show me the treasure money. In other words, bring me a coin. Bring me a coin. And I can imagine that when Jesus said, why are you tempting me? Why? He was probably thinking to himself, don't you know who I am? I've given you evidence who I am. I am God in human form. And I came down here to help you to go to heaven. And here you are trying to trick me and, and get me out of the way when I'm the only one that's going to get you to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, it's going to be through me. So he probably just sighed and said, why are you tempting me? Why are you doing this, you hypocrites? And then he said, bring me a coin. So they, it says, the Bible says, that, so they brought to him a penny or some Bibles say a denarii, which was a Roman coin. So they, somebody reached into their pocket and they found a coin and they brought him a coin and they, and they handed it to him. So he took the coin and he held it up in front of the crowd. There were Jewish people around there, there were the Pharisees, the Herodians, the disciples, different people were all around and Jesus held up his coin in front of the crowd. And he said, uh, he said to them, Whose is the image and inscription upon this coin? In other words, whose picture is on the coin? Wh wh whose picture do you see on the coin? And what did they say? They said, it is Caesar's. Caesar's picture is on the coin. And it's, it's interesting that in America, every penny, every nickel, every dime, every quarter every dollar bill, every $5 bill, $10 bill, $20 bill, $50 bill, $100 bill, all of our currency has a, one of our dead presidents on it, right? Because we put our leaders on our coins, and so did they. The Romans did the same thing, same thing. So he held up a coin, and they said, it's uh, Caesar's picture that's on the coin. By the way, somebody showed me, it was very interesting, uh, about a week ago, he had two quarters. And one quarter, I think, was from 19, uh, or 2000, I'm sorry, 2017. And it said, in God we trust. And George Washington's image was on the quarter. And his face was looking at the words, in God we trust. And then he showed me a 2023 quarter. And in that quarter, uh, George Washington's face was looking away and the words, in God we trust, was on the other side. And his face was looking away from in God we trust. Isn't that interesting? Is that a symptom of what's going on in America? That we are turning away our faces from God. Wow. Yeah, my. So anyway, uh, they said, well, it's Caesar's picture on the coin. Now, here is the key thing. In the next verse, in the next verse, 
actually it's in the same verse, the rest of verse 21. Jesus gave an answer to those men in response to their question. And his answer not only blew them away and they had nothing to say, but that answer relates to the United States of America. I'm going to show you that. I'm going to prove that to you. So here's his answer. Put it on the screen. Jesus said, so it says, Then he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and to God the things which are God's. Now what he's saying, this is very deep. He said to them, okay, here's, they asked him, you know, what should, should we pay our money to Caesar or not? So he said, look at the coin, whose picture's there? It's Caesar's. So then he said, if this, if Caesar's picture's on the coin, then that coin, who does it belong to? It belongs to Caesar. So he simply said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God the things that belong to God. So he didn't really answer their question, yes or no. He just said, this coin belongs to Caesar, so give it back to him. And when he was done with that statement, it says in the next verse, it says, when they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him, and they went their way. And if you keep reading this chapter, there's more people that come and try to trap him. And when this chapter is over, in verse, verse 46, Matthew 22, 46, it says, no man was able to answer him a word, neither dared any man from that day forth to ask him any more questions. <laughs> so that just shows you how uh, amazing Jesus is, that there's no way that puny human beings could trap this man. And every time they tried to trap him, and he gave an answer, they were shocked. And they were done with this whole scenario at the end of the chapter. It says they never, ever dared any more to ask him any more questions because he's just beyond, he's beyond them. And he's beyond us. You know, I want to tell you, I am so, uh, I've looked at different religions. I've been in uh, both sides of the fence, different sides of the fence. I've had a lot of ups and downs in my life, in and out, ups and downs, dark days, bright days, all kinds of days. And, and right now, I am totally convinced that there is nobody like Jesus Christ. Absolutely nobody. There's nobody that compares to him. There's no religious leader, no president, no religion, nobody that can hold a candle to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's far above them all. And I am totally sold out as a believer in Jesus as my Savior. Now, let's go back to uh, verse 21, and let's look at this more carefully. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, look at this. Uh, what Jesus is doing here is he is drawing a line, like the proverbial line in the sand, between the things of Caesar and the things of God. Now, the things of Caesar have to do with government. Caesar was the ruler of the Roman Empire. So the things of Caesar have to do with the things of government. And the things of God have to do with what? 
the things of religion and the things that have to do with your conscience and your heart. The things of Caesar have to do with paying taxes. The things of God have to do with your mind and your soul and your relationship with him. There's a two different spheres here. And Jesus is very clearly drawing, just like we have a church here with an aisle down the middle, he's drawing a line between the things of government and the things of God, isn't he? He's drawing a line, a clear line. Now, I'm going to show you something that is, that is amazing. I'm going to push my button here, and let me see if these fireworks come off. Let's see. Oh, yeah, there's the fireworks. I'm going to go back, and I, I like those fireworks, so I'm going to show them one more time. Ready? One, two, three. Fourth of July. Now, when you think, when you think of fireworks, what do you think of? Fourth of July, America, freedom, right? Now, on the screen is a little tiny version of uh, what's called the, the Bill of Rights. Have you heard of the Bill of Rights? The United States Constitution, at the heart of our Constitution, is what's called the Bill of Rights. And the very first amendment of the United States Bill of Rights that were drafted and approved in, uh, I believe it was 1891, they were drafted in 1887 and approved in 1891. This is what it says in the very first amendment of the, of the uh, Bill of Rights, which is one of the most famous documents in the history of the world, is the Bill of Rights. The first amendment says this, Congress, and that represents government, kind of like Caesar, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And religion has to do with the things that are, that are God's. So it's telling us that the government has a role. The government can collect taxes. But the government is not to make a law to establish religion. That's not the role of government. Government's not to cross over from the government side over onto the religion side and force you to pray, or to go to church, or to do certain religious things. That's not the role of government. And then it says government's not to pass a law to do this, uh, or to prohibit the free exercise thereof. This is called the Establishment Clause, and this is called the Free Exercise Clause. So basically, the Constitution is saying that the government is not allowed to enforce religion or to prohibit people from being religious. And that's where we get religious freedom. Religious freedom is right there in the Constitution. And then it also says the government is not to abridge the freedom of speech. In other words, it's not to stop you from freely expressing your mind. It's not the role of government to stop you from talking about certain things. Uh, or it says uh, to prohibit the freedom of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and freedom of the press, these are rights that have been given to the American people by the Constitution of the United States. Following me? 
Now, uh, here's, the, here's the kicker. Where did the founding fathers come up with such an enlightened statement that the role of government is not to enforce religion or to prohibit people from being religious or to stop people from uh, speaking freely, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom to assembly. Where did our founding fathers in the 1700s get such an enlightened principle that has never been incorporated into the governmental structure of any other nation in the history of the world. Such freedoms were not in Babylon. They were not in Persia. They were not in Greece. They were not in Rome. They were not happening during the Dark Ages. They were not happening in England when the Puritans left England, came over across the English Channel, and then got on ships and sailed across the Atlantic looking for freedom in America. They're, they're, these principles were not there. They've never been in any nation in the history of the world. So here's the question. Where did our founding fathers get such illumination, such enlightenment to put this into the Constitution to the very first amendment of our Bill of Rights. You know where they got it? They got it from Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a book that I've, I've, uh, I've quoted in many of my meetings, and the book, and I don't, I don't have it on the screen here, but you can Google it. It's a book called, it's by, written by a man named George Bancroft, and it's called The History of the Constitution of the United States. And Bancroft said, I'm paraphrasing, he said, no one ever thought in the annals of nations to protect uh, religious freedom and the conscience of the individual until a voice from Judea said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Yeah, wow. Bancroft said that. It was, a, it was a voice from Judea. And that voice was the voice of Jesus, which you could read right there on the screen in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. That was Jesus' response. So not only did he, was he smart enough to get out of the trap of the Pharisees that were trying to entangle him in his talk, but not only that, but he put together a principle that worked its way down the stream of time 2,000 years and got itself into the constitution of the mightiest nation on earth. I mean, if that doesn't, you know, impress you, <laughs> uh, I tell you, this is, this is an amazing statement from the Lord. And I am convinced, this is my belief, that the same person who said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, God what is God's, who has an infinite IQ, who is God in human form, is the same person who came to John in a vision on the island of Patmos 
and showed him another beast that would have two horns like a lamb. Those are the lamb-like horns. It's the principles of lamb. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, separating government and religion, providing freedom in this country, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. That is a principle of the lamb. And so here, so the same, the same person, my belief is, the same person who said this inspired this. Because, you know, the book of Revelation, why is this book called the book of Revelation anyway? Anybody know? Why is it named the book of Revelation? That's right, because the very first sentence of the book says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, that, that uh, Bancroft's book is called The History of the United States Constitution. Uh, George Bancroft. So the, the one who said this is the one who revealed himself and inspired that. You see that? So we're dealing with an infinite mind. The infinite mind that spoke to the Pharisees is the infinite mind that explained to John and showed him the beast and what would be happening with the beast down near the end of time, which is our time. He pinpointed our time. And just like he did all this, and just like he read the Pharisees like an open book, he reads you like an open book. And he reads me like an open book. He knows everything about our hearts. There's not a thing inside of your soul that he doesn't completely understand. Perfectly. And that tells me who we're dealing with. And the good news, the bad news is he reads everything that we think. The good news is that he loves us anyway. <laughs> Praise the Lord. He loves us anyway, and he died on the cross to cleanse us from sin and to change us so we could become like him. That's what the whole Bible is all about. Praise the Lord. So um, now let's go back to the text here. John says, I saw in a vision another beast, which is another nation, coming up gradually like a plant, out of the earth or a, or a sparsely populated area. He had two separation of power, horns, no crowns, like a lamb, like Jesus, which are reflected in the United States Constitution, which were revealed by Jesus in Matthew 22, 21. The whole thing fits perfectly, doesn't it? It fits perfectly. If you have any doubts about whether the Bible is an inspired book, hopefully those doubts will go away. I have no more doubts about my Bible. I have no doubts about Jesus. I am totally convinced he's God. He's came in, the, in human form. He's perfect. He knows everything. He's coming back again, and he's the hope that I have. Hallelujah. And I pray to him every day, every day. Um, so now what does the, the prophecy say at the end of the prophecy? He would have two horns like a lamb, 
But then what's going to happen? It says, that's right, where's my, I've got two clicker sets here I'm working with. One has a pointer and one has a clicker. Okay, there we go. He spoke, it says, he spoke as a dragon. Look at that. Now, the dragon in the Bible, uh, the number one dragon is the devil in Revelation chapter 12. The second dragon is the Roman Empire. Remember, we studied that last night. And the Roman Empire used force. If the early Christians didn't put a little incense in a little, uh, a little offering plate showing that they worshipped Caesar, they would be put to death. Put to death. The Roman Empire did not offer freedom. And the scripture says that America, that has two horns like a lamb, whose principles are principles of freedom, is one of these days going to speak like a dragon. In other words, the, the lamb-like principles of our nation are going to disappear. They're going to disappear. Force is going to be used. And that force is actually described in verse 16. Verse 16 says, Finally, he would cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond and slave, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark. And this is talking about the second beast. And if you look carefully at this, when it says he causes all, that tells us that this nation becomes a superpower with a very strong military. It becomes one of the mightiest nations upon the earth. From growing up gradually like a plant, it becomes one of the mightiest nations on, on the planet. And when it says that he, he causes people to get a mark, he uses force so that no man might buy or sell, buying and selling has to do with the world economy. So we have a nation that becomes a superpower and has the ability to influence the economy of the world. Is there any other nation you can think of that fits every single detail of this prophecy? No. There's only one nation that fits every single prophetic detail of this prophecy, and that is the United States of America. It's the nation that we are in right now. Now, we're not quite, we're not quite at this verse yet. We're not there yet. It hasn't quite happened yet. I'll tell you something. Uh, have we seen in the last few years our freedoms disappearing? Have we seen freedom of, uh, of speech disappearing? So, you know, you better be careful what you say, that if you say something wrong, you know, you could get in big trouble for that, especially on social media. You say the wrong thing and they'll shut down your channel. Shut down your YouTube channel, you know, if you say the wrong thing. Um, freedom of speech, freedom of, pre of the press, freedom of religion. 
are we, are we seeing the loss of our freedoms anywhere? Freedom to peaceably assemble churches? Uh, I tell you, as I look at what's happening in our world, it's very, very clear to me that our freedoms are disintegrating and we're not there yet, but we are moving rapidly toward the final verses in Revelation 13. The final verses. We still have those two horns like a lamb, but they're, they're tottering, they're teetering. And when you really look at, at all these things happening, what's happening is Mount Revelation 13 is starting to smoke. It's starting to shake. It's starting to rumble. The prophecies are moving rapidly down to the final moments of time. And I'm convinced that Mount Revelation 13 is very, very active. That when you study this chapter, it's very clear to me that we're rapidly moving toward the mark of the beast and it's very similar to what happened in the year 1980 around Mount St. Helens when the mountain started shaking and smoking and the word went out to all the people that lived anywhere near there and said, you need to get out of this area because this mountain is about to go off. And most people listened to the warning except for Harry Truman and a few others who thought, I don't need to do anything. This doesn't apply to me. And we need to be careful that we're not like Harry, Harry Truman, that we take these things to heart. And really, you know, as I look at the bottom line, is at the very, very end of time when, when everything happens, and we're going to talk more about this tomorrow night, Saturday morning, and Saturday afternoon. We've got three more meetings. We're going to go into the details about the mark of the beast. We're going to talk about Babylon. We're going to talk about what's coming more in detail when you can't buy or sell. And uh, it's very clear to me that we need, we, we all have a choice to make. And the choice is the dragon or the lamb. He's going to look like a lamb, but speak like a dragon. There's going to be the beast, and the whole world follows the beast, but then there's going to be those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, like I talked about last night. So the bottom line is, we all have to choose whose side we're on. The ultimate dragon is the devil. And we have to decide, are we going to be on the side of the devil? Or are we going to be on the side of Jesus? One or the other, right? There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality in this war. We have to choose whose side we're on. And this is my last slide. Um, it's very interesting to me that when you look at Revelation chapter 13, and I know... I know every verse by heart. I could, I could probably close my eyes. I, I think I can do it. And I could start from the very first verse and I could just quote to you the entire chapter because I've studied it so carefully, it's like in my brain. And I've noticed that the first half of the chapter is about the first beast and the second half of the chapter is about the second beast working with the first beast to force the mark of the beast. And there's 18 verses in the book of, in Revelation chapter 13. 18. Now remember I told you last night, what is not my uh, favorite subject? 
math. That's right, I'm good at history, but not math. But I can figure out what is the middle verse of 18 verses. So if you, if you cut, if, if there's 18 verses in Revelation 13. The first half of the chapter is about the first beast, second half of the chapter is about the second beast. And right in the middle, there's a verse in verse 9. Half of 18 is 9. 9 times 2 is 18. So there is the middle verse. And if you go to Revelation 13, you can read it in your Bible, you can read it on the screen, that right in the middle of the chapter, what happens is Jesus speaks. In the middle of the chapter, about the first beast, representing the most powerful religion upon the earth, which is the Roman Catholic Church. The second beast represents the most powerful nation upon the earth, which is the United States of America. And right in the middle of those two beasts, Jesus has something to say. And what does he say? That's right. He said, if any man have an ear, let him hear. In other words, Jesus is saying that if you have ears in your head, and it's not just talking about physical ears, it's talking about your spiritual hearing. If you, are, if you have spiritual ears to hear, then listen to what he's saying in Revelation chapter 13. Got it? And remember, those Pharisees, they were very, very religious, but they did not have spiritual ears. The Messiah was right in front of them, fulfilling prophecy right in front of them, and they totally missed it. Totally missed it. And I think the same thing's happening today. People that say America has no place in the book of Revelation, we have no place in Bible prophecy, they do not have ears to hear. They're not seeing what's happening right in front of us. They're missing it. And you and I have the privilege of hearing and understanding what is in God's word right in front of our eyes. And he wants us to hear. And ultimately, Jesus' goal is to help us to choose to be on his side. Now, during the Civil War in the 1860s, which was largely fought over the issue of slavery, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was one of our best presidents ever, uh, he was asked during the height of the Civil War, Somebody asked him, they said, Mr. Lincoln, do you think that God is on our side in this war with the South? And Abraham Lincoln thought about that, and you know what he, this is what I was told, he said. He purportedly said, he said, I'm not so concerned whether God is on our side or not. He said, my concern, my biggest concern, is whether we are on his side. That was his biggest concern. And as you listen to Neville sing this closing song, you know, may God help us to hear the voice of Jesus in his word and to make a choice. Lord, I want to be on your side in this battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, this battle of the beasts, this battle of the nations, this battle over religious freedom. I want to be on your side. And I tell you, on his side, he is going to take care of us.
That's your decision. Join me. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Turning back one more time. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Amen, brother. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, this is a sacred moment here in this church. We've just heard your word in the book of Revelation. I wish the whole state of Texas could hear this message. We're here and we've heard about the first beast and the second beast. We can see the writing on the wall. We know that uh, 
Mount Revelation 13 is happening all around us right now. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to feel. And give us uh, the ability to make a choice that we want to be on Jesus' side. Lord, we give our hearts to you right now. We give our hearts to you, our, our hypocritical hearts, our wandering hearts. We need to be cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, wash us clean and help us to live for you in these days and to be ready for whatever comes in the future. And bring us back uh, tomorrow and over the weekend to learn more from the Holy Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.